The other day I came upon a story that struck me. It's a true story written by a man named David Nicole in his book Holiness. And the story takes place in the 1950s in Edinburgh, Scotland. But this is the story. He says, one day I was visiting my friend Dr. John Bach in the afternoon at his home in George Square. And I mentioned to him how sad I was over the death of a child in the operating room of a nearby hospital. I went on to say that I felt great sympathy for the doctor who had been in charge of the operation since he had encountered an unexpected complication and this doctor could hardly be blamed for what had happened. To my astonishment, Dr. Bach, a just and understanding man, replied, well, I don't know about that. I think the man is to blame. If anyone had handed me ether instead of chloroform, I would have known from the weight that it was the wrong thing. You see, I know this doctor very well. We were students together at Aberdeen, and he could have become one of the finest surgeons in Europe if only he had given his mind to it. But he didn't. He was more interested in golf, so he would only do just enough work to pass his examination and no more. And that's how he lived his life, just enough to get by. And so because of that, he never picked up on those seemingly minor bits of knowledge that one day can be crucial. The other day in that operating room, a minor bit of knowledge was crucial, and he didn't have it. But it wasn't the other day that he failed. It was 30 years ago that he failed when he only gave himself half-heartedly to medicine. And the writer concludes the story by stating, it goes without saying that I found Dr. Bach's words hard, and I do not know if in this particular case they were justified, but fundamentally, he was right. For almost a lifetime, we may project an image of ourselves that enables us to get by, that deceives others and can even deceive ourselves. In the end, however, what we are always comes out, and it is for that It is for what we are that we are responsible. Just enough to get by versus giving your whole heart to something. Now, I share that story not to make us feel guilty, uh, not to make us feel like we need to run faster or jump higher, when the truth is a lot of us are running as fast as we can and jumping as high as we can. Now, instead, I I read this story because it reminds us of a danger in our life with God, and that is the danger of doing just enough to get by. This is one of the main ideas that we meet in our gospel passage today. Uh, In our reading that we heard, Jesus says to us, he says, I do not want disciples who simply do enough to get by who perhaps convince others and even themselves that they are doing enough, and yet when they meet the opportunities that I put in front of them or when they face the challenges that they will undoubtedly face in their life, they will fail because they are not ready for them. Now Jesus says 
The disciples that, that I desire are wholehearted disciples, disciples whose desire for the kingdom and for God is the dominant force in their life. This idea, uh, we meet this idea in the second half of our gospel passage today. We're told that Jesus is on the road with his disciples. They are walking towards Jerusalem, and three men come up to Jesus, three men in a row, and all three have a conversation with Jesus, and these are potential disciples. First man comes up to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Your way of life, your teaching, I want to follow it. Which sounds, which sounds great. I mean, if, if any of you come up to me in the narthex after the service and say to me, I want to follow Jesus, I'm going to get excited. I'm going to say, all right, let's get you baptized. Let's have you take ministry match. Let's get you engaged in the church. But not Jesus. When this man says, I want to follow you, Jesus says, buyer beware. Boxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a warning, a warning that uh, discipleship is hard and to love in the way that Jesus loves is hard as well. And that we, we should not make irresponsible, wild claims of discipleship without considering the cost. In other words, Jesus is saying to this man that if you want a life of ease and comfort, you know, go buy a lazy boy recliner. Do not follow me. So that's the first encounter. It's a warning. But then a second man comes up to Jesus. And this time, Jesus is the first one to speak. Jesus says to this man, follow me. And it appears that this man accepts the invitation. But he says to Jesus, before I follow you, I must first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, no. He says, if, if you're going to follow me, follow me right now. Now is the moment. And to be fair, most commentators argue that uh, the father is probably still alive. And what this man is actually saying is that, I need to go and take care of my elderly father until he dies. But once he dies, then I can come follow you. Uh, but, but regardless of the situation, Jesus is saying that the kingdom takes priority over family. And it takes priority over obligations to our family. Now let me just say, that is a hard word. That's, that is a hard word from Jesus. So you have these two men, and then lastly, a third man appears, and he says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first, there's that word again, first, I need to do something else. Let me go and say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we have three conversations Three conversations that set the call to discipleship above every other duty, whether that's duty to the self, duty to the family, duty to the dead. 
three conversations that are deliberately, really deliberately, trying to challenge us and challenge our understanding of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You know, I am, I am sure that this passage and these words have always challenged the church. But I, I think this type of high demand from Jesus is especially challenging to our culture, if not, if not offensive to our culture. We do not like to be told what to do. And that's true in our relationship with God. I mean, one of the phrases that uh, you hear often in our culture, and, and I hear this a lot when I tell some, somebody that I'm a priest, um, they will say, well, I am not religious, but I am very spiritual. Right? We, we've all heard that phrase. I am not religious, but I am very spiritual. And I think the, uh, the appeal of spirituality is that it is vague. I mean, I mean, spiritual can be whatever you want it to be. It's this big uh, accommodating basket into which we put anything about God or the spiritual world that makes us feel better about ourselves. As Flannery O'Connor puts it, it's the act of turning God into our own sweet concoction. It's a great phrase. Right? Do we turn God into our own sweet concoction? Uh, another word, I think, for spirituality is idolatry. Because that's what most spirituality is. It's idolatry. It is the creation of our own God. But you see, our gospel passage today presents something very different. Because in the gospel, Jesus calls us to a very specific type of life that conforms to a very specific type of God. And that is the God of the cross. A God who loves us sacrificially and gives his life for the other a God who loves us in a cruciform way. You know, when you look at your own life and, and think about our life together, uh, what you see is that there are certain desires in our life that dominate us. Uh, there are desires that have tremendous power over us, and, and, and we can probably call these capital D desires. Uh, at the same time, there are other desires in our life that aren't as strong. Let's call these lowercase d desires. We desire these things, but really they are just wishes or whims. And I think one of the, the best things that we can do this morning is to simply ask ourselves, what are the true desires in my life, right? The capital D desires? What desires dominate me? And this question, I think, is, is helpful if we sit with it because it helps us to tease out our priorities. Uh, and, and as we try to answer this question, we, we, we do it with clarity, we do it with courage, and above all, we do it with compassion. Uh, because what I think you will find, because I find this within myself when I ask this question is you find a web of desires that conflict with your desire to follow Jesus. 
you know, commentators who, who write about this passage, most of them focus on this question. You know, what is the priority in your life? What are your true desires? And they read this passage as primarily uh, as a challenge from Jesus to us. But there, but there are a few commentators who argue that the passage is not really about us at all. Instead, it's about Jesus. It's about his priorities, his desires, his life of discipleship. And they argue that in the passage, what we see is the single-mindedness of Jesus. We, we see his focus. That, that nothing distracted him from his call to bring about the kingdom and to bring about the reconciliation and healing of God, the call to share God's love. Nothing for Jesus, nothing took priority over this. And that's because the love of God, which, which drove Jesus forward, it was just too powerful for any other desire to conquer it. And I think uh, that, that if we read the passage in this way, it softens Jesus' words. He isn't saying to us today to, that our families don't matter or that our obligations to others don't matter. It's just that for him, God's reconciling love was the priority. And if we read it this way, it reminds us that we who embrace the, the radical love of God, the radical love made known in Jesus and on the cross, it reminds us that if this radical love, if it gets hold of us, it will change the way we live and it will change our priorities. As we allow God's love to embrace us as we, as we progress further down this path, what happens is this divine light, it, it fills all things and it pulls us deeper into this love. And more than this, as we fall more in love with the infinite love that is in love with us, we find we are transformed by it. And what happens is we discover we are empowered to love others in ways that we never thought were possible. We, we never even knew it was possible to love in this cruciform way. Those three potential disciples who came up to Jesus on the road in our passage we often assume that they did not accept Jesus' call, but the passage actually doesn't tell us that, doesn't tell us their decision. What it tells us is that Jesus pushed their understanding of discipleship to a deeper level, and then it leaves us to wonder how they responded. And the same is, is true for us. Jesus, he, he pushes us today. And the question is, 
Will we let God's cruciform love shape us and shape the priorities of our life? Amen.